I was 25, I was given an opportunity of a lifetime, a once in a lifetime. In fact, it never happens. But I was offered to buy a wholesale company that I was actually working at, that I had started working at as a junior in high school. And between an SBA loan and the promise to make monthly payments to the current owner, I was able to make the deal. Well, five years later, I was 25 years old at the time when I bought it, and at 30 years old, through a number of different events, Sandra and I were convinced more than ever, more than anything in the world, that God was calling us to sell that business so I could go to Bible college. Now, there were members in, of our family who thought, Rich, this is the dumbest thing ever. You received the offer of a lifetime, a once-in-a-lifetime offer, and now you're going to sell that business. How dumb do you got to be? One particular family member who I really, really respected, he, he was kind of the patriarch of the family, came to me and said, Rich, I think it's great that you want to serve the Lord, but first, take care of your financial security for your family, and then someday, go serve the Lord. I explained to him, in as much respect as I could muster, that if God was the one who gave me the business, and now God is the one who's telling me to sell that business, what else could I do? So I got a question for you. There was a way this morning, with 100% certainty, I can convince you that you had a predetermined destiny. And in order to, to fulfill that destiny, the best thing that could ever happen in your life was going to happen. What would you change this morning to chase that destiny? How would you live? Here's another question. What if someone you loved came to you and you admired them and they were sure that they had a predetermined destiny and you just didn't see it? What would you do to convince them that they were crazy and that they should not? How would you try and convince them? Acts 13.36 says this. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers. After he served his generation, it was time to go home. After God used him, he fell asleep and went home. Keep that in the back of your mind as you open your Bibles with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, as we continue in this short break out of 1 Corinthians. Matthew, chapter 20. Next week is what we celebrate as the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, better known as Palm Sunday, right? And then the following week, we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. The passage here in Matthew chapter 20 is set just before these things happen. Now, if you study Matthew, you know that just before all of this takes place, Jesus had just finished teaching his disciples a parable about the one-hour worker. Peter said to him, Lord, we've given up our whole lives to follow you. So check it out. What's in it for us? I've given you everything, so what are you giving me? And so Jesus taught this parable about the generosity of the king, how the king decided that I'm going to pay those who only worked one hour the same wage as those who worked 12 hours. And this brought up two responses. There was the grateful response. Of course, if you're the one-hour worker, you're like, yeah. But then some of the 12-hour workers were disappointed. And disappointment brings wrong expectations and false comparison. And by the way, comparing 
is a sure road to disappointment. The moral of that parable was that we should be joy-filled and thankful that the King of Kings loves us and we receive grace and mercy because of all that Jesus has done. Mercy, we know, is not getting what we deserve, right? The penalty for sin is death. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. So mercy is not getting that. But Christians go a little further and we get something extra. We get an extra bonus, as it were, called grace. Grace is getting something you don't deserve, cannot earn. And so when we fully lay down our lives, we think we're giving up so much and actually we gain everything. It's such a weird thing within Christianity. By following Jesus, we get eternal life. We get a love relationship. And we get more than any earthly wealth could ever offer us. And then finally, we receive a peace that surpasses all human understanding that will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So here now in Matthew chapter 20, where we are this morning, Jesus has this upcoming appointment and everybody around him is saying, this is the dumbest thing you could ever do. Don't keep that appointment. But he's got a destiny and he is determined more than ever to fulfill the mission of the Father. And so we're going to also learn it's a big surprise. As a follower of Christ, you have a destiny and a mission as well. Some of us are on it, and some of us have not got there yet. So if you have your sermon notes there in your bulletin, Roman numeral one, the third prediction of Jesus' death. If your Bibles are open, Matthew chapter 20, start with verse 17 with me. Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priest and to the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. So this is the third time that Jesus has told the disciples, I came to die. I came to save lost sinners, and the only way to do that is I came to die. But don't worry. I'm going to rise again. And they're still not getting it. This is also, by the way, an introduction again to Palm Sunday. And Jesus is on a mission, and he is more determined than ever. And the disciples, they don't understand what's going on, that Jesus has this look in his eye. I mean, that, that determination like, get out of my way. I'm going, no matter what you say, it's going to happen. Mark 10, 32 says this. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. Why were they amazed? And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen. There in your notes, as Jesus was heading to Jerusalem, he was walking in front of the disciples, and they were seeing a look on his face they had never seen before. He has spent three years preaching the kingdom. Three years telling them what's coming. And they're so slow to learn, they're not getting it. But now, none of that matters. What matters is the cross is in my eyesight. And I'm heading towards the cross. Don't get in my way. The time had come. The time prepared by the Father before the foundation of the world. Jesus is heading for the cross. Hundreds of years before, the prophet Isaiah said it this way in the New Living Translation, Isaiah 50, verse 7. 
Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be dismayed. Therefore, I have set my face like a stone, determined to do his will, and I know that I will triumph. What's so cool here is Jesus in verse 18 kind of talks about himself in the third person. and He says, the son of man, right? The son of man. Daniel 7, 13 says, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. So Jesus has been teaching these disciples, the kingdom is coming. And now he's revealing, by the way, the king of that kingdom is standing right in front of you. But first the cross. But first the cross. There in your notes, the same son of man will come back in all his power and glory. But first he must suffer and die for the sins of the world. And again, the disciples still so slow to learn, they still don't get it. They want a physical kingdom now. Rome is in control of Jerusalem. The motherland is, is occupied by Rome and these pagans. We want a physical kingdom now, Jesus, now. And by the way, I want to be the greatest in your kingdom. Okay? Humanly speaking, the cross sounds like the end of the dream, doesn't it? Three years they've been following. Three years they've been looking forward to conquering. Three years... Just wait, there's only 12 of us. This kingdom, we're going to be like the Senate. Just 12 of us can't wait. What do you mean you're going to die? Whoa, 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 whoa. That sounds like the stupidest thing I've ever heard. What are you talking about? Surely not, Jesus. Peter, speaking in Acts 2.23, said, Him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, crucified, and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. There in your notes. The cross of Jesus was not plan B. It was the predetermined will of God for Jesus to take the cross and cleanse us of our sins. But there's a truth here. This isn't all bad news. Do you know that Jesus never once spoke about his death without also speaking about his resurrection? Do you know that Jesus is the Lord of the resurrection? Still today, Jesus causes dead people to come to life. Do you believe that? Amen. Do you believe that? I've seen dead men rise. Dead in their sins and trespasses, walking in Christ today. Jesus today is in the business of raising up dead people. It's incredible. The cross was never the end of the story. The crucifixion may have happened, but guess what? Three days later, so did the resurrection. Child of God, listen to me this morning. If you're struggling, if you're going through a trial this morning, understand that your God still, still raises dead people. Your God still answers prayers. Your God is not slow that he will not answer. Your God is not deaf that he will not hear. There in your notes, Jesus is not in the death business. He's in the resurrection business. Yes, sin brought death into the world, absolutely. But Jesus, his sacrifice brings life. 
I love the way that Romans 4 says this. I love this verse. Romans 4, 17, the Apostle Paul says, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as if they did. Now, how can God call something that doesn't exist as if it did? It's really easy. God's outside of time. And he sees tomorrow as if it's already done. So he can look forward and say, hey, this is going to happen and by the way, it has happened. It's that sure. And we'd say, no way. And God says, I call things that don't exist as if they did because I know they exist. Hide and watch, and I'll show you too. We live in a fallen world, no doubt about it. And you will have tribulation. But praise God, he has overcome the world. The Apostle Paul also said in Romans eight eighteen, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. This suffering is nothing in compared to what we're going to be in heaven. All right, so Roman numeral two, the cup, the cup. Look at verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's son came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am to be baptized with? They said to him, we're able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. So you got to love this. <laughs> James and John's mom comes by. She's like, I've watched my sons following you like for three years, and I hear all this stuff about the kingdom. Hey, Jesus, check this out. I know there's 12 of you, but these two, they're head and shoulders above the rest. Why don't you give them the right and the left of your throne? You see, power and position, and I have all this authority. That's what I want out of the kingdom of God. I want to be top dog. And by the way, if my sons are both, you know, like the vice president and the head of Congress, then, you know, I can do whatever I want. Carson said this, the right hand and the left hand, the proximity to the king's person is to share in his prestige and his power. So that's what she's after. Prestige and power. I want a title. What's my title? Servant. No, 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 no. That sounds great, but what's my title? Slave. No, 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 no. Like, I want to be the vice president in charge of forklifts. Okay, I dub thee. Now go work. But they want the top two positions. There in your notes. Up until the crucifixions, the disciples just did not comprehend that the cross had to come before the crown. It had to. And so Jesus asked these two brothers, are you able to drink this and are you able to be baptized? And of course, they say yes without even realizing what the consequences are. Do you understand what you're saying yes to? Last week, we were speaking on prayer. And we learned that some of God's answers are yes and no, and my very favorite, wait. And this is what we said last week. As Jesus was in the garden pouring out his heart, 
three times he cried out to the Father that the cup of suffering would go away until he finally felt the strength to endure the cross. Matthew 26, 39. Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus being fully man is going to fill all the effects of the scourging, the beating, the cross. Being fully God, he knows it's coming. But he prays to the Father. And it's ironic. This is God the Son. And God the Father's answer to his prayer is no. How many times have we got no from God and thought, he just doesn't love me anymore. He won't give me what I want. And so the Father says, Jesus, your mission is to go and save lost sinners. The cup cannot pass. But what I will do for you is I'll give you the strength to endure. What a lesson for us this morning. We're going through times of trial. And we cry out, God, let this cup pass. Let this trial go. And he says, no. But I'll be with you through it. I'm going to give you the strength to endure it. I have a lesson in it. And by the way, here's a huge surprise. When you go through something in your Christian walk, it's oftentimes God's preparing you to minister to somebody else who's going to go through it in the future. They come up and go, you know, I just don't know what to do. Here's what's going on. And you go, you know what? Been there, done that, got the Girl Scout pinned for it the whole nine. Let me tell you how God showed up when it happened to me. We're to encourage one another. Mark 10, 38, but Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptizer? So what's the cup? What is this cup that God the Father said, Jesus, you got to take this cup? The cup refers to God's wrath and his punishment poured out because of the sin of mankind. Now imagine being Jesus, the only perfect one, the only holy perfect one, fully man, fully God at the same time. And the father saying, you're going to take my wrath. You're going to take the penalty for sin upon yourself. You see, the Bible tells us that the cross was not just an act of injustice by some pagans. It was actually predetermined by God the Father to be the substitute for our sin. Someone had to pay the penalty. And God's heart and desire is that you don't. So he sent Jesus. There in your notes, Jesus Christ received the suffering that the people he saved deserved. And so this cup is filled with God's wrath and God's punishment. And Jesus assumes our place. And again, three times in the garden, let this cup pass. I know what that's going to do. I know what the sins for all eternity poured into one cup, poured out on me, is going to do. Let it pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. In verse 23, Jesus said, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized. So what was he talking about? Because obviously James and John weren't going to pay for the sins of the world. So what was Jesus talking about to these two brothers who want to be vice president and head of Congress? Both James and John went through suffering. 
as Jesus said, you're going you're gonna to receive this cup. Stephen, we know, was the first Christian that was martyred for his faith in the book of Acts. But then, James was the first apostle martyred for his faith. Did you know that? And then what they did to John is, is ironic. They tried to kill John, and they couldn't. They boiled him in oil. He wouldn't die. So they exiled him to the island of Patmos, where he then got the revelation to write the last book in our Bible. Because predetermined will of God. They tried to kill him. He just wouldn't die. I mean, that's a stubborn guy that just won't die. But Christian, listen, so what does the cup mean to us? The cup for us means God's will for our life. God's will for our life. We all have a cup. There's a predetermined mission, and God's got one for us, and it's the cup that God has given us. Again, there's going to be times that you're going to be, oh, God, take this from me, and he's going to say, no, but I'm with you, and I'll give you strength. You'll never walk this dry and thirsty land alone. I'm going to give you all you need, but there's going to be some suffering here. Again, Matthew 26, 39, Oh, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. William Barclay said this, The cup represents the constant discipline and struggle of the Christian life throughout the years. A Roman coin was found with a picture of an ox on it. And the ox was facing two things. A plow and an altar. There in your notes. The inscription on the coin read, ready for either. The ox had to be ready either for the supreme moment of sacrifice on the altar or long labor of the plow on the farm. The ox was ready to give his life or the ox was ready to serve. I think there might be a picture there for Christians. To drink the cup simply means to follow Christ wherever he leads. And be like him in any situation that life brings. See, the Christian life is all about worship, no doubt. Which is represented by the altar. But the Christian life is also about putting your hands to the plow. He's got something for you to do. If you are here this morning and you are breathing... He's got something for you to do. If you're done breathing, then he's going to take you home. The Messianic Psalm, the son speaking to the father in Psalms 40, verse 8, says, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. All right, so here's another tough lesson, Roman numeral 3. Greatness in the kingdom comes by serving. Comes by serving. Look at verse 24. And when the ten heard it, so the other ten hear this, and they're ready to string up the other two. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased, yeah, they were, with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. As you would expect, the other ten hear this, right? We've been serving and walking with Jesus the same amount of time, James, John. What do you mean you get the right and the left? What am I, chopped liver? 
Yeah, they're irritated. There in your notes, Jesus clearly teaches his disciples their behavior. Striving for power and position within the kingdom is the behavior of worldly people. That's the way the world does it. The church is not to operate like the world. You want to be great in the kingdom? Okay, slave, go clean some toilets. Oh, I'm too gifted for that. Then you're too gifted for the kingdom. The nature about Christ's kingdom is all about the king and kingdom people that are not like the world. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father but of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Desire money, desire power, seek position. That's what it means to lord it over them. Webster's Dictionary says it this way there in your notes. The definition of lord it over means to act in a way that shows one thinks they are better or more important than somebody else. The example would be, because she's so smart, she lorded it over her younger brothers. But in the kingdom, the most important people in the kingdom are the slaves, are the servants, those who would willingly serve other people. And why? There in your notes, 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as a lamb without blemish or spot. And again, in verse 26, Jesus says, I want my people to be servants. And you can just imagine these 12 disciples, right? Peter already asked the question, I gave you my whole life. I've been serving you all these three years. I've given you everything. What's in it for me? And Jesus said, become a slave. Now James and John come up and say, we want the two top positions. And Jesus says, be a slave. The other ten come up and say, hey, we're irritated with those two. What are we supposed to do? Be a slave. He's kind of repeating himself. There in your notes, the Christian life is countercultural to all that the world teaches, including how to be important and hold positions. Next there in your notes, the goal in Jesus' kingdom is not to rule, but to serve, and greatness is characterized by intense humility. Newsflash, Jesus didn't come to earth to occupy a throne, but to hang on a cross. I've said this before, but if I am the creator God of the universe and I come down to my creation, you will worship me. I'm going to sit on a throne and you're going to know who I am. And I am going to call it and you're just going to do what I say. And that's how it is. Not so with Jesus. That's not Jesus. Jesus comes down, allows them to spit on him put a bag over his head, punch him in the face, do all these things, hang him on a cross. Why? Because he loves those he created. Paul, speaking of Christian behavior in Romans 12, 9, said, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. 
Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. So Stephen Cole says, not lagging behind actually means you got to ask yourself, am I fervent serving the Lord? Am I lazy with the things of the Lord? Am I like the church at Laodicea that Jesus spewed out of his mouth and said, you're lukewarm? Or are we serving? Is there an indifference in our heart about Jesus? And, and if there is, then it's time to refocus and serve. Fervent means to boil, to boil. It means, man, get after it. The Lord wants zeal to come out of us, but only as an overflow of the Holy Spirit. It's not a guilt trip. You know how many times people have come up and just, you know, I just don't want to serve. Okay, got to provide somebody else. What they don't know, it's a huge secret, so don't tell everyone. Tell everyone, just cover your ears. The huge secret is when you serve, out of overflow, because you love Jesus and, it, and you're not being made to, you actually get joy. Don't tell anybody. It actually gets exciting. It is actually so neat. I get to baptize. Am I tired? Man, and let me tell you, I've had a week. I've had a month. I've had a year. But I get to. I get to. Not I got to. If you got to, stop it. Just stop. You get to. And when you have that attitude, you get the joy, joy, joy down in my Where? Okay. Roman numeral four, ransom for many. Look at verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Real ministry is done for those you minister to. Not for some minister. I am, look at me, I've got this position. No, you're trying to bless people. Spurgeon said he received nothing from others. He was a life of giving and the giving of a life. There in your notes, no service is greater than to redeem sinners by his own death. No ministry is lowlier than to die in the stead of sinners. You know, in Bible times, the word ransom there is actually used freeing slaves, to free a slave. And Paul said this, Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that the old man was crucified with him. Why? That the body of sin might be done away with, that we would no longer be slaves of sin. Jesus ransomed you. Jesus came from glory. He was going back to glory, and someday he's coming back in all his glory. In his high priestly prayer, this is what Jesus said in John 17. I have glorified you on earth, talking to the Father. I have finished the work you've given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had before the world was. There in your notes. Jesus did not leave his glory in order to seek glory here on earth, but his glory was the cross at Calvary as he unselfishly paid our ransom. 
He was in all his glory, left his throne in heaven to come be beaten and put on a cross for me. So let's get practical. Again, imagine these disciples, and they're fighting over position. Man, if I'm Jesus, oh man, I, I think I'd have caused another storm to happen. Uh, lightning, something, something, just, just to make them fall on their face and realize who they were arguing with, what they were asking for. And, and they're so interested in a human crown, an earthly crown, and they don't have spiritual things. And he, here's the thing. You want to know if you're mature in Christ? Just ask yourself if you ask these words. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Wherever that is. Be available and just speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Then you know you're beginning to mature. Rather than saying, like Peter, hey, what's in this for me? Jesus, I gave you my life. You're so fortunate to have me. So what are you going to do for me now? Now that you've been freed from the slavery that you were in now you're a servant and you lay down your life because he laid down his life if we belong to him and all that we have and all that we are are his isn't it time to offer it back i mean isn't it time everything we have so here we are serve and and so what's the step one i want to give you step one you know the kiss method the kiss method what's the first step to serving Motivation. Motivation. What's your motivation to serve? If it's out of duty, let me tell you what duty smells like. But if it's out of love, because of his great mercies, because of his love towards us and the greatness of our salvation, he should become our passion. When we serve with the right motivation, that's when. And, And again, keep this a secret, but if you're serving with the right motivation, and you'll know, Because, man, you get that fulfillment, that hole that's inside you that God put all of a sudden starts filling up. It's like the Grinch. He's got a new heart, you know, and all of a sudden you have that joy and that abundant life. It's because you're doing it with the right motivation. If you're doing it out of guilt, let me tell you what, on the Bema Seat Judgment, it's going to burn, and it means nothing. Ephesians 1.18 says that you may know what is the hope of his calling, What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? So that in mind, this is what I want you to contemplate on this week. As a member of the kingdom, our calling is a gift from the king. Okay, our calling is a gift from the king. Number two, as a member of the kingdom, I'm called for the king's purposes and not my own. So first, he gives me a calling, it's a gift. Second, I'm called for his purposes, not my own. And by the way, the king knew those purposes before the earth had its foundation. The king knew those purposes before I was ever born, which is crazy. Number three, our calling from the king is directly connected with serving others. If you think your calling is somehow for self-promotion, that's not a calling. There are heavenly rewards, of course. But the joy that comes from serving the king... And when we fulfill our God-given calling, again, that fulfillment and that joy and that Christian walk, and it's so much better than the daily grind of just trying to figure this out. We were made, every one of us, just as Jesus came as a man on a mission with a purpose, a, a predetermined mission. Each one of us were made for that as well. And greatness in the kingdom comes from serving, comes from serving. 
And as we serve, we start to imitate Jesus. You know, so many of us would say, I want to imitate the Lord. Serve. Then you'll imitate the Lord. When we realize these truths, then we have this determined focus heading for eternity. And, and today, isn't it great to know that the Lord chose you, and created you, and loved you, and then he even equipped you? So these special assignments. And here's something that's also so cool. Do you know my assignment is not the same as yours? Do you know your assignment's not the same as mine? Your assignment's not even the same as your neighbor or your spouse. God, the creative artist of all time, created a special purpose for just you. That's wild. So you can rejoice and be confident that, again, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You don't even have to do this calling by yourself. In fact, I'd prefer if you didn't get out of the way. And so here's the final thing about the whole message, and this is the most important part. So pay attention. You also have an appointment at the end. You have an appointment with destiny. Do you know that we're all eternal beings and the only difference is our address of where we will spend eternity? Every one of us are eternal beings. We will live forever somewhere. Somewhere. And it's the will of the Father that you accept that free gift. He didn't owe you anything, but he sent his son because he wants you to be in heaven someday and have eternal life. And so this morning, that's, that's the question. If you don't know this Jesus, if you have not accepted this free gift of this man who was on this predetermined mission to come and save lost sinners, if you don't know him that way, he loves you. He loves you. He took the cross for you. And you will live forever somewhere. And his will is that you live with him and the Father in heaven. Let's pray. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you are blessed. If you'd like to find out more info about our church or any other resources like sermon notes or things like that, you can check out our website at livingfaithclamath.com. Make sure, if you haven't already, to subscribe or like us on whatever your favorite podcast app is. You'll find us at Living Faith Fellowship Klamath Falls. Again, be blessed. Be blessed.